Okay, let's just say it up front. This is a difficult parable. The last time it came around in the lectionary, one of our Sunday school teachers asked me, what's up with this parable? Because they had to teach it that morning. Do you have any insight? And I responded, I was kind of hoping you did. And then, you know, you turn to biblical scholars. Maybe they will help you. And one says, on the face of it, the steward looks like a junk bond artist who not only saves his skin by defrauding his master, but wins praise for doing so. Another scholar says Jesus seems to be holding up a criminal act as an example to be emulated. And yet another says the problem we face is that although Luke consistently talks about possessions, he does not talk about possessions consistently. How's that for a little bit of New Testament Zen this morning? Everyone seems to agree, even those with a lifetime of study of these things, this is a difficult parable. If you didn't kind of turn up your nose a little bit at the end of it, maybe you weren't listening. This is a difficult parable. So let me, with fear and trembling, venture this. What if this parable is not so complicated after all? What if the parable is just trucking in some of the same motifs that we're very familiar with today? And what if, like all other of Jesus' parables, all of them, this one is also about the grace of living in the light of the kingdom of God as disciples? A grace that is not cheap, but grace just the same. The pathway to the kind of life that Jesus calls abundant. So you know I get to thinking about these things and looking around in the culture for similar ideas. And I'm sure some of you remember a difficult movie that came out in 1993 called Schindler's List. It detailed the life of Oscar Schindler, a Czech businessman and a member of the Nazi party. He's a vain and greedy person who becomes an unlikely humanitarian when he feels compelled to turn his factory into a refuge for Jews. He is distasteful in every way. He sees an opportunity for cheap labor when the Jews are starting to be rounded up into ghettos. And he basically starts out by enslaving them in his factory. But one day he sees the death camp at Auschwitz. And something inside this distasteful man shifts. We might call it grace. Whatever it is, it creates a crisis of conscience. And he responds by using that same shrewd mind of his, but he turns it away from his own gratification, turns it toward others. And he begins bribing the Nazis and buying goods on the black market to feed and clothe his workers. He ultimately moves his factory from Poland 
where the workers would most certainly have been killed, to the Sudetenland where they were ultimately saved. By the time the war is over, Schindler has no money to his name, having spent all of his profits in bribes and black market purchases for ever larger luxury items as bribes for the Nazis. Now, I think we can all agree he's a complicated figure. He's not any less shrewd by the end of the war than he was at the beginning, but his cleverness has been redirected toward others rather than himself, toward life rather than death. He empties himself of all that he owns at the end of the day to save others, and even though he was a member of the Nazi party and someone whose business was built on the back of oppressed Jews, In 1963, the nation of Israel named him as righteous among the nations, an honor given to non-Jews who risked their lives to save Jews during the Holocaust. He was the only member of the Nazi party to receive this honor. You find these kinds of figures in movies, in books, Shawshank Redemption comes to mind, Citizen Kane, the character of Jack Sparrow from Pirates of the Caribbean, Severus Snape from the Harry Potter books and movies, or if you want to go back further, Hamlet or Othello from Shakespeare's works, we could go on and on. We even have a name for this type, the anti-hero we call the anti-hero. So through that lens, let's look at the manager in this parable. He's the middleman in an enterprise in which the rich exploit the poor. The wealthy property owner is owned, or the owners are owed money by the poor farmers who work their land. Landowners allow farmers to build homes and work on their land for a cut of the profit. Of course, the cut of the profit is enough to forever keep these forerunners of sharecroppers dependent and in debt. And the managers or the stewards, they're the ones who keep track of this arrangement. They keep the wheels turning. They're hired by the master to collect their debts and run their properties. The managers collected the debt that was owed to the owner plus a commission, kind of like the tax collectors did as well. In other words, the managers made their living by sticking it to the farmer a second time. And it was all legal. And then there's a crisis in the parable. The landowner gets word that the steward has been mismanaging his property. He confronts the manager who notably doesn't dispute the charges. He is about to be fired. The the owner tells him as much. Go and give me an accounting of your stewardship because you're no longer going to be the manager of my property. And the tension in the parable revolves around this one question. What will the manager do in this moment of crisis? 
And we learn that he is shrewd. We saw that already in his behavior. In the Greek, the word shrewd can mean discerning or clever or prudent. He sees the crisis clearly and he comes up with a plan. He goes to the people who owe his employer money and he reduces their debt. How, you ask, does he do this? It seems from all the evidence we can find in the parable itself and in the context of the parable that he eliminates his own commission. Now instead of owing 100 jugs of olive oil, the debtor owes 50, which tells you that it was quite the commission. And instead of 100 containers of wheat, another owes 80. And so in one bold move, the manager has turned these farmers into his friends. They are now indebted to him. They, have, they will have favors to return once he is unemployed. And the landowner commends the manager for his cleverness. He's far from angry, this landowner. After all, he's not going to be out any money. And he recognizes smarts when he sees them. And then the parable is over and Jesus makes the comment that serves as the key to interpreting this entire passage. The children of this world are shrewder than the children of light. So make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth so that you may be welcomed into the eternal homes. A, a curious sentence. But if you place that sentence in the context of all of Jesus' other teachings on wealth in Luke's gospel, what one preacher said about wealth remains true. Wealth begs to be served. We can use it to enrich ourselves and make people beholden to us, or we can use it to make friends and serve the eternal God. We can utilize our resources of time and money and energy for the kingdom, or we can put them to work for ourselves. We can be discerning and clever and prudent and shrewd in serving God or in serving money, but the whole point of the parable is that we cannot do both. Jesus is saying, in essence, church, be equally as clever as this manager. He as a criminal and you as one who is the citizen of the kingdom of God. The thing that seems to me that is praised about this manager at the end of the day is his ability to tell the time. When his master comes to him, he knows my time is up. This is a crisis that demands a response. He has to turn all of his prodigious shrewdness to the crisis at hand. For him, the crisis is such that he's willing to lose money to gain friends so that he might have a, a place to sleep when he is unemployed. The only thing really to emulate there or to praise is his awareness, right? And his willingness, once he's aware, to put everything on the line to save his own skin. 
Now remember, Jesus is talking to his disciples here, not the crowds in general. And so these words are for those who follow him, for the ones he calls the children of light. The parable asks them, do you know what time it is? Do you realize that the kingdom of God has drawn near? Do you see the crisis, your own crisis, what we might call the crisis of grace? This is the crisis Jesus brings in almost every story, in almost every parable, in almost every act of healing, in almost all of his teachings. He is bringing an awareness of the nearness of the kingdom of God, an awareness of the grace of God which brings a crisis to all who hear it. What is the crisis? The awareness that all that we have and all that we are is a gift. The awareness that our lives, our next breath, our time, our wealth, our world, all of it down to the smallest molecule, all of it is gifts. We who are so keen on self-preservation, we who can uh, easily get trapped in the illusion of being self-made, we who can so easily believe that the only way we will make it is by our own shrewdness, we are encountered with a crisis of awareness in Christ. We who are so eager to say who is in and who is out, we continue to be scandalized by these parables. Why? Because they reveal God's grace. And yet grace is all there is in things of God. It seems appropriate then to end this sermon on this very difficult text, and this very difficult character, with the words of an anti-hero who is very much like the manager, one that you may or may not be aware of named Marmeladov. It's a character in Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment. The character is a bumbling addict whose family has been wiped out by his spending all that they have on his own drinking. And toward the end, he says these words. At the last judgment, Christ will say to us, Come, you also. Come, drunkards. Come, weaklings. Come, children of shame. And he will say to us, Vile beings, you who are in the image of the beast and bear his mark. But come all the same, you as well. And the wise and prudent will say, Lord, why do you welcome them? And he will say, If I welcome them, you wise men, if I welcome them, you prudent men, it is because not one of them has ever been judged worthy. And he will stretch out his arms, and we will fall at his feet, and we will cry out sobbing, and then we will understand all, we will understand the gospel of grace. Lord, your kingdom come. From the mouth of an antihero. Several years ago, I was taking communion to one of our homebound members. 
We just said the liturgy. You would have had to know this man to understand this fully. We just said the liturgy. We ended with the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the elder handed him the bread, which really is a little tasteless cracker. And he looked at it and he smiled like it was a steak dinner. And he looked up at me and he said, Amazing grace, Pastor. Amazing grace. And he ate. And I left that home saying thank you, as I have so many times, for a church like this one that forms disciples like that man, that preaches grace for all and means it, so that when someone gets to the end of his days and the crisis of death looms, which is, again, merely the crisis of grace, he can face it with those words that sum it all up for all of us. Amazing grace. When we've been there 10,000 years bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's grace than when we first begun. The kingdom has come near in Christ. He invites us today as every day to follow him, for truly grace will lead us home. Amen.